Happy Mother's Day to all. I do have a Mother's Day poem as well that I thought I would start out with. It's by Billy Collins, who uh, was the Poet Laureate of the United States for, I think, at least two or four years and used to teach out at the Bronx at Lehman College. And the poem is called The Lanyard. The other days, as I was ricocheting slowly off the pale blue, blue wall... Sorry, let me try that again. The other day, as I was ricocheting slowly off the pale blue walls of this room, bouncing from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one more suddenly into the past, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I'd never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them, but that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I'd made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted teaspoons of medicine to my lips, set cold faith cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim, and I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education, and here is your lanyard, I replied, <laughs> which I made with a little help from my counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here I wish to say to her now is a smaller gift, not the archaic truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hands, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. Happy Mother's Day. I have to admit, I have a certain ambivalence about Mother's Days and other holidays, Christmas, New Year's, Father's Days, Memorial Day. I mean, almost any holiday, in part because, um, maybe because I have a slight rebellious streak, but I always feel like you have to feel a certain emotion on those days. You're, you're required to. You're expected to. You're entrusted that you will. So it's one of the reasons I told my wife early on in our relationship there are a few things I hate more than surprise parties. Because um, I'm an introvert by nature. My emotions are somewhat unruly. But if you throw a surprise party, not only must I look shocked, but immediately shock must move into delight and enjoyment. <laughs> and as an introvert, I need more time than that. <laughs> I would much rather be warned so I can work my way up into enjoyment, delight, and shock. Part of the difficulty I think I have with Mother's Day is, um, though I honor mothers and I'm grateful for all that mothers do, the definition of mother that gets celebrated at Mother's Day doesn't fit every woman as comfortably as our tradition would suggest. Many of us aren't mothers at all because we're single or God hasn't gifted us with children. Many of us don't feel the heartwarming 
generous sense of nurture, but actually caring for our children was a loving discipline that we exercised, but didn't flow as naturally as the greeting cards might suggest. In fact, when you look at the description of what we expect mothers to be based on Mother's Day, I want to suggest that maybe our definition of mother has been shaped by other forces than actually the mothers that we know, the mothers that we are. It's an odd mix of kind of Victorian ideals of this woman who sits alone at home nurturing her children, saying, tut, tut, there, there, have a little bit more. (laughs) Swirled in with modern 21st century hallmark sentiments and an odd mix of Christian culture. What strikes me is that the definition that we celebrate on this day is shaped less by the people that we encounter and by these other larger societal forces around us. That our imagination of who mothers should be and who, as contrasted to who they are, are at the mercy of people outside of ourselves. So the question I want to ask in part as we approach this passage in uh, Colossians chapter 2 is who or what monopolizes your imagination? As you think about who you are, who the church should be, who we should be as a people, a nation, or a world. Because I think unless Christians look with discerning eyes at who's shaping the narrative and the imagination that we employ to describe who we desire to be, we're actually at the mercy of these other forces, these other movements, these other ideas, these other idolatries, other ideologies that have little maybe to do with Scripture and more to do with other forces. And so if you have your Bibles, open them to Colossians chapter 2. And I'm going to begin a verse earlier because as I was studying, I thought it set up the passage very well. In Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Essentially, he seems to be saying, don't let the world press you into its own mold. He seems to be arguing that the ideas that you allow in your head, the commitments that you give yourself to, the imagination, the scope of the imagination of your world actually shapes your destiny. Because your imagination controls your life, and if you allow people or advertise your ideas to shape your imagination, then they control your desires and they control your destiny. This is really clear if you've ever traveled overseas where you realize that the American imagination shaped by a belief in endless expanse of space that everyone deserves to have, by immediate, incessant consumer demand and satisfaction, by a belief in the individual's power to overcome everything, is profoundly different than the imagination which shapes other parts of the world. If you uh, grow up in Asia, the entire idea of an individual isn't even part of your imagination. It's about who you are as part of a family, a community, and a clan. If you're in Africa or large parts of Latin America, your definition and imagination of what success looks like means that your children have survived and not merely succeeded and earned more. And Paul seems to be saying in at least verse 8 that the ideas which shape our imagination are more than just cultural forces. He describes them as these elemental spirits of the world. 
See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He seems to be suggesting, at least in the worldview of the time, that people at that point believed that the stars were really spirits or deities, and that there were forces and powers in the world, gods who controlled your life. And while we may not believe that the stars control our destiny, though an awful lot of people do read the astrology pages, our lives are still often deterministically driven by ideas, capitalism or socialism, nature or nurture, which actually guide our lives and our imagination in powerful ways, so powerful that they actually become spiritual forces in and of themselves. And if capitalism or socialism, nature or nurture seem too large, that same limiting effect of shaping our imagination comes up in simple things that we often say to one another. You're never going to change. I'm always going to struggle with this. My life is never going to get better. You can hear in each one of those phrases, can't you, how their imagination is collapsed. How the world that they lived in has been circumscribed by something other than Jesus Christ. A spiritual force and a power which limits your ability to engage and limits your ability to hope in faith that God will act. Paul seems to say that when these forces which circumscribe our imagination have that kind of power, they actually have spiritual power. They're rivals to Christ, and in the end, we inadvertently give them godlike status and submit to them. Living by the way they describe the world that we should live in rather than the way Christ describes the way we should live. And so he goes on to say in verses 9 and following, he invites us to have a Christ-filled imagination, a Christ-shaped story because we share in his fellowship, and a Christ-focused belief that God has already triumphed and therefore we have freedom. So he goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, for in Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have only, sorry, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority, right? So don't believe in these elemental spirits, these other powers which circumscribe your belief and your imagination. Instead, these aren't of Christ, and in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. Our imagination, Paul seems to be saying, should be filled, shaped by, consumed by Jesus Christ, his person, his character, and his work. And if it is, then this understanding of Christ, in whom the fullness of deity dwells, answers three key questions which shape some of what our imagination is about. Who is God? Who am I as a person? And who are we as a people? Paul says, Jesus reveals the fullness, the presence of God in his very person. We know what God is like because we have seen Jesus. And whenever the Old Testament talks about the fullness of God, it's talking about his presence being there. And Paul says, when you look at Jesus, you realize all of God was present and God was fully present with us. And in Jesus, we see him. What's striking is that if Jesus reveals who God is, Jesus also reveals who human beings should be. Because Jesus was fully God and fully human. So what do we know about God because we've seen Jesus? He's a God who engages in issues of justice and compassion. 
He reaches out to touch those who are untouchable. He listens to those who had no voice. He speaks words of judgment against those who would abuse their power or authority and exercises might over every area of creation and every aspect of who we are as human beings. He's all-powerful and yet comes in the form of a servant. He demonstrates his love and his wrath, his mercy and his wisdom as he dies in our place and on our behalf. We see what God is like. When students ask me, why are you a Christian? I think of all the philosophical answers I can offer. I think of all the realities of why the Bible is reliable. In the end, I'm a Christian because I've seen Jesus. And that, more than anything, drives my beliefs. But Jesus also reveals what humanity should be like as well, doesn't he? A humanity that listens and responds to God who can say, I do only what the Father asks me to do. I do exactly what he commands, who gives himself fully in trust into the Father's hands, believing that whether in life or in death, in joy or in suffering, the Father will sustain him, provide for him, and vindicate him. There is no fear, and there's no anxiety but gratefully giving himself to other people out of an abundance of what God is doing, following wherever God desires him to go. You can see how, if you believe this is what humanity should be like, because Jesus is the perfect man, how all of a sudden our imagination of who we could become has changed. Where it's no longer circumscribed by our circumstances or our DNA, our culture, or our experiences. God's fullness, his presence dwelt in Jesus Christ's physical body, And then by implication, God's fullness and presence continues to live and dwell in Jesus Christ's spiritual body, which is the church, which is where Paul seems to be going in verse 10. You have fullness within you as well. One commentator says, in the absence of the historical physical Jesus, the church is now the personal presence of God within history and therefore responsible for mediating his revelation and redemption to the world. Who defines and controls our imagination of who we identify and imagine ourselves to be as a church. If you wander around the United States, so often our imagination about church is really driven by the same people who designed our shopping malls, isn't it? You walk there, you pick out the services or things that you need, you buy, you consume, and you leave. It's a handy place to share a quick meal, acquire a few things, but certainly not a place that you might live. The other model of the church is often a belief that it's this quiet, desperate remnant huddling together for warmth and for comfort in a cold world. Neither, I want to suggest, reflect to me an imagination driven by believing that the fullness of God indwells not just an individual because the Holy Spirit dwells within you, but more importantly as a body, the church, I think one of the reasons we love C.S. Lewis so much is that he's able to capture our imagination in new ways. In his book, The Screwtape Letters, he actually reflects a little bit on the church as a senior tempter challenges a younger devil to distract a newer Christian from attending church. The older uh, tempter says at one point, one of our greatest allies at present, frankly, is the church itself. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it's quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate, 
When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to him, offering him a shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them really understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of spiritual lyrics, mostly bad and in very small print. When he goes to the pew and looks around him, he sees that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty hard on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what type of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that the religion must somehow therefore be ridiculous. It requires an act of the redeemed imagination to allow us to believe what God has said and to live into it without being conformed to the ideas that the world thinks. But I'm convinced if we understand Jesus Christ to demonstrate the fullness of who God is and the people of Christ are actually reflecting here and now the fullness of who God is and who we could become, then the mission of the church is incredibly important. When we do what Jesus would do, we reflect what God is about and people are captivated. Three weeks ago at Ohio State University, InterVarsity helped lead a thing we called the Price of Life Invitational. Now, past models of uh, large-scale evangelism have largely been attractional events. You would bring somebody big like Billy Graham. People want to see Billy Graham, so they come, and somehow Billy Graham does whatever Billy Graham does, and lo and behold, people come to faith. I've heard him speak. He's a great preacher, but I don't understand why thousands of people respond. It's truly the Holy Spirit. I mean, if you've ever heard Billy Graham speak, you realize he's a fine speaker, but other people do that, but somehow the Lord uses him. But we realize that there are no Billy Grahams around. Right? There's nobody, maybe short of Bono from U2, that you could put on a college campus which would actually draw non-Christians. Christians are very excited by our own celebrities. Nobody else knows about them. Nobody else cares. So we thought, rather than do an attractional event, what happens if we did an invitational event? And knowing that current college students are um, focused and driven and passionate about issues of justice in a way, frankly, that I've never seen in 15 or 20 years of campus ministry, um, we chose an issue... Um, around sex trafficking, believing that students care about this issue, they're outraged by the abuse of the image of God in other people, and are willing to act. So we proposed a one-week series of events on the issue of sex trafficking, and the beautiful thing is when the Christian Fellowship does that, everybody else on campus wants to get involved. So you can approach the feminists and the gay and lesbian student associations and say, we'd like to do something to help end sex trafficking. And because of the unique issues that they're concerned about, the dignity of women, the importance of sex, they're all automatically on board and want to help. And so we can talk to them about what kind of event would you like to co-sponsor with us? And often we'll invite somebody from International Justice Mission, people who use their legal skills in order to bring freedom to sexual captives. You can go to almost any ethnic student group, particularly the Black Student Association, and say, do you want to help end slavery? in a modern-day abolition movement, they're immediately on board and want to co-sponsor event. Fraternities and sororities cannot wait to help raise money to end sex trafficking because it satisfies their philanthropic commitments. You can go to the law school and the business school and talk about, do you want to help us think through the ethical, um, legal, and economic 
issues related to sex trafficking, we can bring in a world expert out of World Vision who works on this issue internationally. They're on board. Suddenly, the departments in sociology and women's studies, the entire university is gathered. And over the course of 20 different events during the course of the week, and at a large-scale event, we watched 300 students come to faith. Why? Because non-Christian students were compelled by the reality that when the people of God do the things of God, God becomes visible to them. One of the ways we demonstrated it is we brought... Um, we brought several uh, twin, si- twin mattresses on campus, taped a $1 bill, a $5 bill, a $10 bill, a $20 bill, and a $50 bill to it, and we would ask people who passed by, how much would you pay to have sex with a 12-year-old if nobody would know? And people are shocked, obviously, and you can say, well, you know, for a dollar, you could find a 12-year-old in Bangkok. Students are outraged, and then you begin to talk to them about their outrage. From whence does this concern for justice emerge? How do you think we could solve that? Do you think a change of law will really do it? Do you think greater enforcement will change it? What's the answer? They've already confessed and acknowledged human sin as a reality by their response. They know the limitations of systems and structures to change problems like this, and they're led inevitably to the problem of the human heart. And once you've confessed the reality of sin and you acknowledge the problems of the human heart, It's just a step to the gospel. It requires a vibrant imagination of who we could become, who people are as created in God's image, and who the church should be to begin to drive this. Paul goes on to say, not only do we experience the fullness of deity in Jesus Christ, we experience fellowship with Christ, and therefore we resist these idolatries and ideologies that drive our imagination, because Our identities have been shaped by the story of Jesus. Because Paul makes this amazing claim that Jesus' story is actually our story. And in as much as it happened to Jesus, it happened to us too. Look again at verses 11 through 13. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision. By putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Jesus. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave all our trespasses. We find our identity in Christ's death, which is the circumcision Paul is talking about. He says, look, The reality is the physical change in the body of a male Jew did nothing to preserve a people for God throughout the Old Testament. It marked them physically, but it didn't change them spiritually. And how will that spiritual change occur? Because we share in the death and the resurrection of Jesus himself. We were baptized with him in in his death. We were raised with him and we were made alive with him. You see... Gentile converts to Judaism at the time were required to be circumcised. They took a ritual bath for washing. And if at all possible, they went to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple. And Paul picks up on these three elements of Jewish initiation, and he redefines them around Christ's death as a new marker of our identity. We have Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. We have the cleansing, renewing experience of the forgiveness of our sins, And Jesus Christ satisfies every need for sacrifice for our guilt. So I want to suggest that as a people, it's imperative that the church, it's imperative that as individuals we repudiate any story whose imaginative scope doesn't define our story by the story of Jesus. We can be defined neither by our genetic predispositions nor our cultural expectations. 
our biological realities or our psychological dysfunctions. In the end, our identity is shaped by Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and by nothing else. It's why, frankly, um, I've known a few folk who've really struggled with alcoholism. And in many ways, they're my heroes. Whether because of biological predisposition toward alcohol or family origin issues, whether seeking a certain amount of um, relief, whether because of psychological or physiological addiction, whether because it's demonic power in their life or just a personal weakness, what they recognize is the story of all of those things will not drive the story of their life. That if they're actually in recovery, what they're acknowledging is that there's a higher power who must intervene and has intervened and is bringing them sobriety day by day, hour by hour. They're rewriting their story around the story of this higher power. And my longing and hope for them is that the higher power they begin to slowly identify as the person of Jesus. You see what they're doing? They're saying, biology cannot define me. Whether it's nature or nurture is irrelevant. My longings and my hopes can't be driven by just what emerges within me. It's the story of God's redemption that will drive me and allow me to become who God has called me to be. What this requires for us as a church is a certain amount of self-reflection. Are the stories which drive us, the things which we think limit us, actually things which reflect Christ's death and resurrection? Or the things that the culture tells us we are? or that we should be. Finally, Paul goes on to say, not only do we see and experience the fullness of Christ, not only do we have fellowship with him so that he shapes our story, we resist these futile ideologies because we experience real freedom in Christ. Let me pick up again at 13. So when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made them a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. He points out two things. You have forgiveness for your sins. The debt you owed God was canceled out, was literally rubbed out. Um, As if you worked in parchment or you had wax tablets, all it would take was a little little scraping, and it was gone. And he says, then they took that, um, that document of debt, and God pounded it to the cross. Over the cross would have been hung the written charges which brought about the death of the person who hung there. And Paul says, because Christ died in your place and on your behalf, because he paid the debts that you yourself could not pay, you're free. You have nothing left to fear. <laughs> We saw this um, recently at Ryder University where a student came to faith um, earlier in April. Uh, This was fun for the students at Ryder because this this was their first second-generation Christian where a student had come to faith the year before and then brought one of their own friends to faith. Sarah was a Jewish student or is a Jewish student who began coming to InterVarsity this fall because of her friendship with Ross. She grew up really orthodox. She speaks Hebrew, and she's on Ryder's Hillel's leadership team. If you're not familiar with college campuses, Hillel is the Jewish equivalent of InterVarsity. Um, and she teaches religious educations at her synagogue, basically Saturday or Sabbath school. Um, but she began to come to the InterVarsity meetings and felt extreme discomfort um, to the point of panic when Jesus got mentioned for the first time because if you're an Orthodox Jewish woman who teaches Sabbath school, Jesus is pretty terrifying. 
But she felt so accepted and so loved by the university community, and at the same time she felt Hillel was being pretty dysfunctional, she decided to stay. She attended large group regularly all year, and slowly, like a lot of people who find community before they find conversion, she started to get involved. She actually showed up early in a way that the Christian students wouldn't do and began to help set up the chairs, move the tables, and began to greet people about what, as they would enter the room. After every meeting, Ross would talk to Sarah, so what did you think? And she'd say, I have no idea what you all people are talking about, but I'm intrigued. I want to know more. Can you explain? So what's this thing with the singing? (laughs) And she moved closer and closer to Jesus and more and more conflicted in her beliefs. So a few weeks prior to that, in March, our staff worker there was meeting with Sarah and said, you know, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to try believing in Jesus for just one thing. Sort of test them out, like, you know, a drive on a car. You don't have to give in to the entire thing yet, but just acknowledge he's there. So Sarah had always had these extreme bouts of anxiety, and so she decided to trust God, to trust Jesus with her worrying, that she didn't have to worry or stress anymore. In early April, a Messianic Jew came to speak at the large group meeting about his conversion, weirdly enough, from Islam. Um, (laughs) His testimony included several miraculous encounters with God. And as Sarah was trying to leave the meeting, she said, I had an experience of God, which I felt like there was this weight that settled me that was so strong and so heavy, I couldn't move and I couldn't even lift my head. Ross saw her struggling and walked over to her and said, what's going on? Can we talk? And as they prayed, she decided to become a Christian. This is what she says. Since then, I can't stop smiling. The anxiety I've struggled with all my life is gone. I have a sense of peace I've never experienced before. I've given up several behaviors and patterns, um, and I wonder why I chose them in the first place. And when people ask me what Jesus has saved me from, I say he saved me from all 613 commandments which I teach at my synagogue. Now I just have to love God and love my neighbor is myself. I was at a crossroads between freedom and obligation, and I 100% chose freedom. I choose Jesus. In Jesus, we have forgiveness, and Paul answers this question, if you've died and been raised with Christ, how do you understand your continuing desire to sin? And he says, you are not defined by your sins any longer. You have been fully forgiven by Jesus no matter how much you struggle, no matter how much you agonize, no matter how much you may despair. Have nothing to fear, my friends. You have freedom in Jesus Christ, and he's already forgiven you for your sins, past, present, and future. Do not despair. Allow your imagination to be bigger than your experience now. And he says, look, the things that controlled your imagination, you have deliverance from because Jesus triumphed over the powers of evil. The rulers and authorities, the powers, the civil, military, religious, or imperial who condemned Jesus, whose, their judgment was repudiated and judged by God at Christ's resurrection to be wrong. And Jesus continues to do that over every power which would contest the world that we live in with him. Any anti-God God, ideology, power, or principle may still exist and may still exert influence, but Jesus Christ at his death on the cross demonstrates he is in control. Do their worst, Jesus Christ triumphs. 
God disarmed the rulers and the authorities and paraded them in front of him like a Roman triumphal procession because when the Roman armies would conquer, they'd take all the prisoner of wars and trot them out at a parade. And as you saw these formerly proud enemies beaten, discouraged, weak, and wounded, as a Roman citizen, you know you were powerful, and as you, that parade finished, the person who conquered would roll on by to demonstrate that Rome had completely cowed their enemies. And what Paul seems to say is, Jesus Christ has conquered everything. The powers which formerly controlled you are wandering down the streets now, broken. And Jesus Christ follows, not a triumph of chariot, but bearing the cross, demonstrating precisely how he triumphs and how we will triumph with him. It's a lot like, I think, the Nazi masterminds of the Holocaust who were tried at Nuremberg. As Hannah Arendt, a sociologist, studied those transcripts and read about them, particularly around um, Adolf Eichmann, she subtitled her book on the experience, The Banality of Evil. How these formerly super powerful beings which controlled the destiny of the world turned out to be miserable excuses for human beings whose only excuse was, I was made to do it. Paul challenges us to recast the voices that we hear, shape them around Jesus, shape our own story around Jesus, and then to press into the freedom that Christ offers us. I want to end with this. In the book Colossians Remixed, two theologians um, tried to interpret and rewrite Colossians 2, 8 through 15 as if Paul were writing to us today. And I thought it would be worth reading because the jarring nature of what you hear would have been what the Colossians heard and maybe what we should wrestle with. Make sure that no one takes your imaginations captive through a vacuous vision of life rooted in an oppressive regime of truth that parades itself as something other than mere human tradition. As if someone had privileged access to a final universal truth about the world apart from Christ. You see, in Christ there is radical presence of deity, fully instantiated and situated in the particularities of history. And you have come to partake in that presence. That fullness is yours in Christ, who is the very source of every rule and authority that purports to have sovereignty over your lives. In him, you find your legitimacy, your entrance into the covenantal community, because in relation to him, your real problem, a deeply rooted sinfulness manifest in violence and self-protective exclusion, is addressed and healed. The symbol of legitimacy is not the size of your stock portfolio or the number of hits on your website, but the ancient rite of baptism in which you die with Christ to all those pretentious symbols of self-aggrandizement and are raised with him through a trusting and believing faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Don't forget that once you were dead too, dead in the dead-end way of life that characterizes our cannibalistic and predatory culture. But now you are dead to that way of life, and God has made you alive with Christ by dealing with the real problem through radical forgiveness. You see, when the idolatrous power structures that bolster the suppressive regime of truth nailed Jesus to the cross and poured out all their fury on him, all your debts were nailed there too. All the ways the empire of death held you captive and robbed you of your life, the exhausting and insatiable imperative to consume, the bewildering cacophony of voices calling out to us in the postmodern carnival, the disorientation and moral paralysis of radical pluralism, the loss of self in the multifrenic culture, the self-indulgence of linguistic and social games, the struggle not to become roadkill on the information highway. All of this is nailed to the cross, and you are set free. 
Let's not beat around the bush here. What's at stake in this conflict at the cross is indeed a power struggle. And Jesus takes precisely the principalities and powers that placed him on the cross, the idols of militarism, nationalism, racism, technicism, economicism, and on that very cross disarms, dethrones, and conquers, and makes public example of them. In this power struggle, sacrificial love is victorious precisely by being poured out on a cross, a symbol of imperial violence and control. What's at stake, I want to suggest as we end, is not just a couple ideas. It's the very way we think and the way we live. The way we allow people to circumscribe our imagination and shrink the hope that we have within us, which is Jesus Christ raised from the dead. So, Celebrate Mother's Day, but celebrate the mothers that you've been given so that you don't fall prey to a false imaginary mother that doesn't do the mother you love justice or bring her joy. But then as you do so, do that as part of a discipline to shape your lives, the imaginations and the future of this church and this world around Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, because he is the treasure worth pursuing. The scripture guides us along a way which won't lead us astray. And in him we'll find everything that we need and everything we could hope for. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm grateful for the way my brothers and sisters here at Community Bible Church wrestle with the scriptures, wrestle with their hopes and dreams and lay them before you. So Holy Spirit, speak so that our dreams and our hopes for ourselves, for our children, for our parents, for this community, and for the world around us are shaped around the person of Jesus Christ, who lived, who died, who rose, and now who reigns with you. Demonstrate your reign in our lives, we pray, Lord Jesus, in every area of life. Amen.